When my son was first learning to walk, he was really wobbly on his feet. And one of the things he loved to do was to hold himself up on the sliding glass door that overlooked our deck. Now, this was a time in our lives when my wife and I owned a cat. And I tell you that to just say, all of us have a past. <laughs> and God forgives. <laughs> But we had this cat, and the cat also loved the sliding glass door. So he would nestle himself between the drapes and the sliding glass door. The sun would come in, and it was real warm and cozy in there. And so my son, one day, was up holding the sliding glass door, and he was just banging on the window, kind of having a great time, and it disrupted the cat. And so he came out, just kind of shooting out between the drapes and the sliding glass door, and it surprised my son. And so he steps back and starts to fall backwards, and as he's falling backwards, he reaches for the only thing that's at his level, the tail of the cat. It was a moment that mattered for that cat. And the relationship between the cat and my son was never the same again. You know, all of us have thousands of moments that happen every single day. In fact, the average person on the average day will experience 20,000 unique moments. And almost all of those moments are mundane they're routine, they're unmemorable. But every now and then, every now and then we have a moment that matters. It's a moment where something significant happens to us. It's a moment where we learn that something is true or we find out that something is true about ourselves. It's a moment that matters. And all of us have had a moment that matters. But the question this Easter is have you experienced a moment that matters with God? John did. John had a moment that mattered with God. And that moment, he discovered that there was something that was true, and that because that thing was true, there was now something that was true about him. And that moment changed for John everything. I'm convinced this Easter, God wants to have a moment that matters with you. He wants you to understand that there is something that is true and there's now something that could be true about you. And when you discover that moment, everything for you will change. It's a moment that matters. And our moment can come when we understand why the Easter moment matters so much. And for that, we're gonna hear John's words about that moment he experienced on the very first Easter. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Here at Wooddale Church, we love and value God's word. And that's why every service that we have, we preach and speak from God's word because we believe that the words we contain in the Bible that are contained in the Bible are God's very words and that they are truthful, that they are helpful and useful for teaching us about who God is. And so we want you to be reading along God's word with us. So please open it up if you're online or you're here at the Adina campus. If you're here at Adina, we'd love for you to grab one of the Bibles that we provide for you. You can find John 20 on page 1651 of those Bibles we provide. As you're turning there, let me set the stage for us. Jesus, God in the flesh, had been walking and ministering on earth. He had been teaching about the kingdom of God and about who God is and the nature of God and performing all sorts of miraculous signs and wonders. And then the unthinkable happened. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested and he allowed himself to be killed on a Roman cross. That was on Friday. 
It's now three days later, the third day later, Sunday morning when these events take place, John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, she was also one of the followers of Jesus, went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. And Mary is going to the tomb because in this day and age, when someone died, they would take the body and they would wrap it very tightly in burial cloths. And then they would set it inside of a tomb. That tomb wasn't in the ground like a grave that we would use today. It was like a cave that was carved out of some rock. And the body would be placed in that tomb for about a year. And in that period of time, the body would start to decompose. And then about a year later, they'd go back and collect the bones and then place those in an ossuary. And because the smell of those decomposing bodies was so strong, people would often put spices around the body to just make it more manageable when they came and collected the bones later. And because Mary saw that Jesus died, and he was dead, and he was buried, and she's anticipating that his body is going to be decomposing, and so she's going to the tomb on this Sunday morning to put spices around the body, and she discovers his body is not there. So she runs back to the disciples. Verse two, she came running to Simon Peter. He was another one of the disciples. And the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That's John referring to himself in the third person. He's gonna continue to do that throughout this passage. And she said to the two disciples, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Now this was was massive news. Jesus' death was a shock to the disciples and to his followers. And now to discover that his body is gone would have been very confusing and a very important moment. And so Peter and John, they rush to the tomb. And what I find fascinating about this is as John's recounting for us this really significant event, Jesus is missing from the tomb. He goes out of his way to give what I think to be like an awkward level of detail about who got to the tomb first. Listen to what John writes. Verse three, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. It's like John goes out of his way to be like, listen, I beat Peter to the tomb. And I find, that, I find that interesting and funny and honestly kind of a little weird. Like, John, why do you care so much? And people have said, well, maybe there was some conflict between John and Peter. Peter was always listed as the first disciple. He was seen as the leader. Maybe this is John's way of saying, yeah, he might be the leader, but, but I got to the tomb first. Or, you know, maybe just Peter was out of shape. I don't know, like, why John gives us all this detail. But, but actually, the reason that John gives us all the specific detail is because this actually happened. This event occurred. That John did reach the tomb first, and this moment for John was life-changing. This was a moment that mattered. And so he is remembering every single vivid detail. And the same way you and I can remember some really vivid details about the moment that our children were born. Or or you might remember exactly where you were when you heard about 9-11. 
It's when we remember these vivid details because it's that moment that matters so much for us. That's why John's giving us all this specific detail. Listen again to how much detail he gives about the linen. In verse five, he's speaking about himself. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw, what did he see? He saw the linen lying there. And he believed. So what was it about seeing the linen that caused John to believe? See, the linen gives us a clue about why this moment mattered. And John tells us in verse 9 why that's the case. Here's what he says in verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. If you've ever wondered, is the Easter story actually true? Then verse 9 is for you. Because it's really apparent with how John is writing this that John didn't make this up. There's actually a number of reasons for that. The first is that we get the account of the resurrection, the empty tomb on Easter, not just from John. We get it from John, but we also get it from Matthew, who was an eyewitness. We get it from Mark, who likely heard about it from Peter. We, we hear about it from Luke, who was a doctor that thoroughly investigated all of the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. And there were over 500 people who experienced and spoke with and saw the risen, resurrected Jesus. So it's not just John's story, it's all the stories. But it's also the fact that John gives us all of this really specific detail. John's writing within a couple decades of this event occurring. And he gives all the specific names and places of where he was and what happened. If someone wanted to dispute it or say that John made it up, it would have been really easy to find that out. Because all those people and places were still alive and still there when John writes this. And when John begins to tell us the story of the empty tomb, the very first person that finds out that Jesus is missing isn't Peter. It's not John himself. It's a woman. And we read that, and that's like no big deal. But in this culture, at this period of time, when John wrote that, women were not considered to be reliable witnesses. And so if John was just making this story up, he would never begin with a woman being the first person to find out that Jesus was gone from the tomb. But he writes that because that's what happened. Which, by the way, I just love that when the culture didn't value women, the first person God told that Jesus had risen from the grave was someone that the culture didn't value. Just love that that's how God pursues us. But I think the most convincing reason, out of all of those reasons, that John wrote this and that this is true is because of what he does in verse 9. In verse 9, John says, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is anchored in Scripture. 
which is an odd thing for him to write because when he was referring to scripture, it wasn't the full Bible that you and I have. Some of this, that the New Testament wasn't written yet. It was still being written. But what he's referring to is what we would consider to be the Old Testament. It was the Jewish scriptures. And what's interesting about this claim is that John is saying that the scriptures said that Jesus had to rise from the dead, but no Jewish scholar, no, no religious leader at the time was teaching that. They believed that the Messiah was going to come and defeat Rome. None of them predicted that the Messiah would come and be defeated by Rome on a Roman cross and then three days later rise from the dead. That was on no one's radar. And so for John to say that the scripture points to this, again, if he was making this up, you wouldn't make up that claim because it would be really easy to say, okay, John, well, let's just go to the scriptures and find out if that in fact is true. And so if for us to know, like, is the Easter story true? Let's take John's lead. If this is true, then there should be a passage of scripture from the Old Testament that makes more sense in light of the resurrection of Jesus. And in fact, that's what we find. Isaiah 53 is one of the passages in the Old Testament that I'm pretty sure John had in mind when he wrote verse 9. And Isaiah 53 describes the prophet Isaiah talking about a suffering servant that would come from God himself. And when we read Isaiah 53 in light of the resurrection, it explains to us so much, not only about why Jesus had to rise from the dead, but first and foremost, why Jesus even had to die to begin with. Here's what the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53. I'll pick it up in verse 4. He writes, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. That's what you would consider someone who was crucified on a cross, that they were afflicted by God. Verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what Isaiah is writing there is language that would have been familiar for the, the hearers of that day. Because at this point in time, when people wanted to worship God, they had to go to a temple. They had to go to the temple. And when they went to the temple, they had to bring a sacrifice in order to be able to go into God's very presence. And the reason for that was because of their sin. Sin is just anything that we do in our lives that's outside of what God has called us to do or how God has showed us how we're supposed to live our lives. God has a list of commands. And when we step outside of those commands, that's sin. And so often you and I choose to do things that we know are wrong, but we do them anyway. That's sin. All of us have sin. And, and the people at that point had sin. And because of the sin, people needed to bring a sacrifice. And so what the people would do is they would go and they would bring an animal and they would take an animal and place it on the altar. And as they placed the animal on the altar, they would take their hands and they would lay it on the animal. And that was them signifying that they are laying their sin on this animal. They're laying their iniquity on this animal, and then that animal would be killed. And that sounds gruesome, and it sounds intense, but it was just a powerful symbol for the people to understand that this is what their sin does. Their sin brings death. We actually know that. 
Intuitively, you and I know that our sin brings death because we've experienced that. We've experienced a relationship where sin got involved in that relationship and it killed the relationship. Or we've experienced the fact that when we have certain areas of sin in our life, it it kills our sense of self-respect and self-worth. And all of us have had sin bring what is always brought with sin, and that is a spiritual death. Every single one of us have a spiritual death because of sin in our lives. And if we don't do anything to take care of that sin, we feel and experience that spiritual death. That spiritual death is the reason that there's a restlessness about your soul. There's a reason that you long for something that it's like you can never quite reach it. And it's because spiritually you're dead inside. You know that there's something that's not right with how the world is. There's something that's not right with how you are, but you can never quite seem to fix it or do anything about it. And the reason why is because spiritually you're dead. And you know what dead people do? Not much. And so you can't fix it yourself. Something has to happen. And and the reason that the people would bring those sacrifices and lay their hands was a powerful reminder that this was the consequence for their sin and something had to be substituted for them in order to cover over their sin. But those actions were temporary. Every time they wanted to go to God, they would have to do this over and over again. And what Isaiah is promising is that one day there is a servant that is going to come that's going to be the perfect sacrifice. One day there's going to be a servant that's going to take on as a substitute the consequence for our sin once and for all. And we won't have to continue to make those sacrifices over and over again. Isaiah is pointing us to the death of Jesus. That's why Jesus had to die as a substitute for you and for me so that we wouldn't have to suffer the consequence of our sin through a physical death, spiritual death, but that Jesus would take our place. So that's why he had to die, but why couldn't Jesus just stay dead and give us salvation and new life? Why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? And Isaiah goes on to explain why. Here it is in verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, that's just what we were talking about, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. How can you see the light of life if you're dead? You can't. You have to be undead. You have to rise from the dead in order to experience the life of light. And what Isaiah is saying is this servant is going to do that. That after he suffered, he'll see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And that word right there, justify, is why Jesus had to rise from the dead. Here's why. When we're justified, it means that we are made right. It goes well beyond just being forgiven for something. It's that we now have a right standing. We're made right when we're justified. Jesus rose from the dead because he was justified over sin and over death. See, here's what happened. All of us have sin in our lives, and Jesus came to have our sin laid on him. The iniquity of us all was put on him, but Jesus himself never sinned. 
And because Jesus never had sin in him, that meant that when he physically died, when he allowed himself to be killed, death does what death does. It wraps around the human that has died and it never lets them go. And and it grabs onto them and holds them and won't let them go because they had sin in their life. And that sin is that point where they hold on to and there's no way out. But Jesus didn't have sin. And so death wrapped up Jesus, but it couldn't hold Jesus because he had no sin and he rose from the grave victorious, having justified himself over sin and death. And because Jesus is our substitute, that means that Jesus goes first. And so if we have placed our faith and our trust in him, then what is true for Jesus will one day be true for you and for me. That just as Jesus rose victorious from the grave, so you and I one day will experience a resurrection from the dead if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus. That when Jesus returns, he will call us and we will be like him coming alive again from the grave. And when John walked into the tomb, And he saw the linen lying there. He got it. And he got it because of what he saw in the tomb. What he saw was the strips of linen lying there. And he saw how the linen was distributed. That it was unraveled over here and the the face covering was over here and it was neatly folded and separated. And he realized in that very moment, this was no work of a grave robber. Somebody coming in to steal the body would not take the time to meticulously unwrap the body. He realized this was the work of the man who was once bound, but is now free. And when he realized that, he understood that he was not just free from the bonds of the linen, he was free from the bonds of sin and death, and that because Jesus was free, John was now free. That John was now forgiven, that John was now justified in the view of God because of what Jesus had done for him and he was now experiencing new life. And I so wish that we could be in that moment with John to experience for him and with him that moment that mattered. And and we can't unfortunately walk into that very tomb and see those same strips of linen lying there like John did. But I do wonder if the linen could tell the story from their perspective. If the linen could somehow describe for us that moment that Jesus began to break free from their grasp. If that moment would help us to have our moment so that we too can believe. Let's take a listen to the linen. I wonder what story the linens have to tell. I have held this man for three days, bound death within his bones for three days. I have made mine to be nothing more than mere tombstone. Still, lifeless, heavy, laden with the sins of another, you. I felt your pride bludgeoning bruises into his brow. I've heard the tearing of his beard as your coins jingle a betrayal, trading that which fades with sunset for someone who would have lasted into your tomorrow. For centuries I have held the bodies of men and women as time stole from them their tomorrow. 
For centuries I have seen skeletons walk in daylight. I've heard bones clatter to the applause of mankind. I've seen phalanges reach for fulfillment and that which never enters these walls, these walls are void of life, hollowed like cage of rib, that once searched for love but now captive to rejection. I have seen the mind chase addiction only to be left longing. Who would have thought that the mind would thirst for anything less than what is righteous? Corpses are prone to exhale rebellion. So I will forever swaddle their sin, wrap them in condemnation, allow their heart to be so filled with fear that it forgets to beat. In this tomb, some will hold truth within these walls. Only tongue will be allowed to lie here. And darkness will cover their eyes like lids, veiling the hope of tomorrow because their past has brought them here. Because your past has brought him here. Messiah, wrapped within my arms, something for which to you I to forever be grateful. But, but, but there, there's a problem, you see, one that I have not encountered for a millennia. As a matter of fact, for centuries I have held the bodies of men and women, as time stole from them their tomorrow. But, but this man, no, no, not a man, how could he be? He must be something different, he must be something more. He's not like you, he's not like anyone whom I have held for a millennia. For his blood tastes of lavish love. His stains unending, who would have thought that forgiveness would be so bloody? That cleansing would come through burgundy droplets for three days. I've held this man, captured his desire to be something greater for three days. I listened to debt to the grave sing a victory for three days. I watched death dance over his body, but today, today was different. For something happened that had not yet happened before, this man began to rise. And as he began to unravel my grip from his body, death became silent. The grave began to tremble and bow. The tombstone began to flee. The gravel lamented its loss, and I was laid aside like corpse, folded and laid at bedside, for I had been conquered. And as I watched John enter this tomb, I mean, as I watched you enter this tomb, I mean, as I watched you enter this womb, I wondered if, like John, you would leave different than you had come. I wondered if your footsteps would no longer clatter like the sound of skeleton, but would become a chorus of resurrection that all of your life might be poured out like Christ on Calvary. For Christ was not meant to be the only body risen to life that day. No, this moment of all the moments of his story was meant to change your eternity. So will you leave behind the regret of yesterday and walk in forgiveness like tomorrow for the sun has risen and my grip on you has been unraveled. What will you do?